We've kind of titled uh, the series of, of the book of Genesis as we're working through it, uh, The Beginning of Grace. And what we've seen in the book of Genesis isn't just that, that here's the creation, here's what's going on, but we've seen a God behind all of this. Like what, what is exposed primarily isn't just stories, but it's God. He, he's the one that's being exposed and, and being explained in the Scripture. And so this is what we've seen in the book of Genesis, that out of the overflow of God's character, He creates. And we've seen His grace time and time again when, when you see humanity, instead of coming and running toward God, rebelling against God and running away from Him, and yet God has still been gracious. And so in Genesis chapter 13, this morning we are going to look at God's grace again. And this time it's going to flow out through a, kind of a, a crazy story about family and, and, and relatives. Now you guys probably have a relative or a few relatives. It's like, yeah, I have that crazy uncle, like Uncle Drunkle, right? Or you have that crazy nephew. And here's, here we're going to see Lot and his nephew kind of work some things out in this story. So as we turn to Genesis 13, let's... Let's pray this prayer together based off of Jesus' prayer, great high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. So will you, will you pray this and say this with me? Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. Well, most of you have heard of John Newton. He is the, the great pastor slash hymn writer who wrote Amazing Grace that has been sung a million times over by many different artists. Now... What you probably have heard about John Newton, if you've heard about his life, is that John Newton was, was in a storm. He was on, the, on a ship and he was in the storm and he was so terrified by the storm that he gives his life to God and from there he, the rest is history, right? He, he becomes a pastor. He probably immediately pins Amazing Grace because he's just received the grace that is from God. And then he starts writing these other hymns like we sing as well, Christ Crucified, that is also by him. But... Actually, according to the story, Newton's uh, conversion, Newton's Christian life is a lot more complicated than just that, that he was converted during a storm. Actually, what happened was that he was in the middle of this storm on the sea and and he did need his, he saw his need for the first time of his need for God's mercy and grace in his life. And and he in some way committed himself to the Lord, but he went for some time without any sort of Christian friends or or church or, or pastor to disciple him and to look after him. And, and it was actually not just right that time when he was converted that he gave his life to Christ that he became a pastor and started writing hymns. In fact, it was a lot longer after that than then those things came along. When he was, after the storm experience, he continued on. And actually, after the storm experience, he became a captain of a slave ship. And so here we have... John Newton experiencing his his need for the grace of God and even understanding it through the Scriptures. Then going on to captain a slave ship where horrendous things are happening that we don't even need to go into because we know the horrors of the situation that he was in. And here's what he said after the storm experience, after his need for, for mercy was shown to him, He said, I was satisfied, that is with being a ship captain, a slave ship captain. I was satisfied with it as the appointment Providence had marked out for me. And we think like something's off in this story, right? This is not the way we thought it was supposed to go. John Newton, you, you experience the grace of God and then you start writing Amazing Grace, right? Not you experience the grace of God and then you go on to captain slave ships for another almost a decade. From the time that this storm experience happens 
to the time when he publicly starts to criticize the slave trade was a decade span. So Newton's story is pretty complicated. As he had received and experienced the grace of God, it wasn't just that he had everything figured out from that point on. Now he's a pastor, now he's writing hymns. I think we've seen something similar in Abraham's life, have we not? That Abraham received a call from God. Go and be. That Abraham heard the promises that God had given. Land and seed and blessing. That Abraham had believed these things. But then he didn't follow through faithfully. He goes down to Egypt. He acts out of fear. He, he, He makes questionable decisions. Sinful decisions. And yet God's grace intervenes still. We saw this last week at the end of chapter 12. God intervened in Egypt when when Abraham and Sarai were were teetering on the promises of God. Their faith was lacking and they made some poor decisions. So the promises of God are at stake here in their lives. And yet God intervenes by His grace, even in their failure. And Abraham, we get to see here, respond to that grace. Here we see Abraham's a man of, of faith and failure. And in need of growth. And we get to see that growth today. And as Abraham travels, and as we travel, we need to remember the same things. We need to remember, as Abraham needed to remember, the promises of God. And to respond to them rightly for our growth and our faith. Because if we stuck our story out there, it wouldn't be we were converted, we experienced the grace of God, and then we had everything figured out from then on. We started writing hymns, being a pastor being Father Abraham or whatever the case may be. No, we need growth. We need to remember God's promises. We need to respond to God's promises. And we're going to need to repeat that over and over again. God's going to need to grow us. And then we're going to need to remember it again. And then we're going to need to respond to it again. And then we're going to need Him to repeat it again. Because we are going to need growth along the way. This is why, part of the reason why we are called sojourners. Because we're, we haven't arrived yet. And that's okay. It's okay to not be perfect and okay here. Because we know... Part of our identity is those who have not arrived at our destination. But God is gracious. And He is the one we look to, to strengthen us and to grow us. And He graciously gives us this view into Abraham's life. This is a a man of faith, Abraham. An example for the believers, for the people of God. But he wasn't perfect. He's helpful, really helpful, but not perfect. So God graciously delivered him in Egypt and He blessed Abraham and He sent him out of of Egypt with, with more than he had. And now we get to see in chapter 13, Abraham respond. Before we saw God intervene, now Abraham responds to God's grace that had saved him. So if you look in chapter 13, verse 1. Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, with all that they had, and lot with them into the Negev. Now they had to have this lot uh, quote here to to make sure we know. It's setting the stage for what's to come in, in, in chapter 13. Lot has been and is with them during this time. Now going up from Egypt is a good sign. You know, the people of God, when they go down, it's always considered down, you go down to Egypt, it's never, good things aren't happening there. But now we're going up, we're, we're moving in the right direction, he's going the right way. And so the author seems to be hinting at us that, that Abraham is moving in the right direction, that his, his faith is maybe returning or, or maybe even growing. And you have to think about this, what, what pushed Abraham into Egypt in the first place? It was famine. There's a severe famine in the land. It pushed him into Egypt. Maybe he, he thought, this is the only way I can survive. This is the only way I can keep going. Maybe that's what was happening that pushed him into Egypt. We don't hear whether the famine is over or not. 
It could have been over. It could have been that he stayed there long enough that, that it's over. It could be that all these possessions that he now has from Egypt that he can provide no matter what. But, but we're not sure. Maybe it's still going on and Abraham is, is returning in his mind, in his heart. Like, no, I'm going to trust God and I'm going to go back to the land. No matter what's going on, Abraham is going in the right direction. He starts to go back to the Negev. If you look at verse 2, Abram, he's now rich in livestock and silver and in gold. So he, he leaves Egypt, like in Exodus, with more than he came with. He, he leaves with, with livestock. Now, we, don't, we didn't see him get silver and gold from Pharaoh. We saw him get some livestock. So maybe he's a, a good trader. And he started turning some things into cash. And so he gets in some livestock. Now he's got some silver and gold. And he's good to go back into the promised land. But it's worth pausing and remembering that. That Abraham didn't just get this stuff by earning it. He didn't work his way into all this livestock and silver and gold. No, God intervened. God was the one who graciously had provided for Abraham in a tough situation. He got this stuff by the grace of God. He didn't earn it. He didn't deserve it. He just received it. And that's always the requirement for grace. You don't earn it. You don't, ever you don't ever deserve it by something you have done. You, you're just glad recipients of it. And this is how the Bible describes Abraham's blessings. And this is how the Bible describes our salvation. You don't do something to get it. You don't deserve it because of who you are. No, you, you are to receive it gladheartedly. And so as Abraham journeys back into the promised land, he starts to hit some of the places that he's been before. Verse 3 says, And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, and to the place where he had an altar at the first. And there, Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Now there are many hints in this chapter that, that Abraham's faith is growing. He goes up from Egypt, and here he returns back to a place that he has been before. And I think that part of Abraham's growth in faith is seen as he returns to this altar that he built before. He built this in, in chapter 12, verse 8, is when he built this altar. When he received the promises of God, when he's believing in God, he builds this altar. Now perhaps you guys have returned to a place of significance like this. A, a place that meant something to you, that you had a, a strong memory there. And Jack Pearson on This Is Us, the, 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 the show, he returns back to the place where they, their first apartment in the show to, to bring back that memory of when they were first married and together. And many of you might go back to your old high school and roam the halls, the hallowed halls of your high school, and, and, look, and relive all the memories that you've had there. Or, or if you have children, you can think about different things that you tuck away in the attic and you pull them out and you're like, oh, you remember those kind of feelings, those things that were going on. And this is... This is what Abraham is doing here. He's returned to an altar and he's remembering. He's thinking about what happened when I built this. So this altar would have been a reminder of God's promises. Of all God had said to him. And it wouldn't just have been a reminder of God's promise. It would have been a reminder of, of Abraham's belief in those promises. Enough to respond in building an altar unto the Lord. So it's reminding him of, of some of his earlier faith. That maybe he'd walked away from a little bit in Egypt. And so I think that this return is significant. That Abraham is moving in the right direction. Or some sort of physical return. But there's also this, this spiritual return, as it were, to the promised land to this altar, to the promises of God. And the Bible is full of invitations from God to remember, to be reminded of God's promises, to be reminded of God's covenant, 
To be reminded of God's provision. To be reminded of God's protection. To be reminded of God's deliverance. You have all sorts of symbols, all sorts of invitations to remember these things in the Scripture. So there were physical reminders. We, we saw a rainbow. That was a physical reminder of God's deliverance, of, of God fulfilling His Word, of, of being careful and faithful to all that He has said. You, you, you see meals that are set up around this in the Old Testament to remember how God had delivered people. You see meals set up to remember the covenant that God had made with the people of God. All of these are invitations to remember. Remember what God has done. Remember what God has promised. And all of these things that, that we are to remember are important for us to encourage our faith. And this is what Abraham does. He returns to this altar. He sees what he had re- received from the Lord. He remembers his former faith and he's encouraged in his faith. So why does God do this? Why does God invite us into remembering? So that the people of God would trust Him and continue to trust Him and call upon His name as Abram does here. When he went down to Egypt, there were no altars, there was no blessing flowing out to the nations, there was no calling upon the name of the Lord. Abram returns, he sees this altar, he calls on the name of the Lord, he responds to what he has known about God and who he knows God to be. He worships God. Remembering these things is necessary because here's the reality, is that faultless faith does not become ours once we become God's. That is, God's apostrophe S, not when we become God's. (laughs) Faultless faith does not become ours when we become God's. Abram teaches us that, right? He was a failure. He was fearful. He was giving in. It seemed like he was kind of giving up his wife. I mean, there's all sorts of complications there. John Newton, he he sees this stuff in the storm. He sees how he needs God's mercy. He hears from the Scripture. And yet, a decade before he starts speaking out publicly against the slave trade. I mean... Our stories are in there too. All of us are examples of this. That our our faith isn't faultless at the beginning. That there's lots of growth. And more growth than we can imagine needed. And so what we're going to need to, to grow that faith is we're going to need to remember God's promises. To remember God's word. To remember God's character. To remember His provision. To remember His protection. See, it's it's... A wrong expectation to think of Abraham as, as this one who immediately has arrived. That he's, a, he's a pillar of our faith. And he's immediately arrived and we, we look to him. As soon as God's called him, he's set. He's good to go. Let's send him out. That's not what happened. He struggles. He fails. He needs growth. He needs to remember the promises of God. See, he had forgotten or he had neglected God's promises. He had neglected God's character. Life had gotten busy. A famine crowded in. Pharaoh came along and he forgot and pushed back. God's promises and provision. And remembering is necessary for us for those same reasons. We are going to struggle. We are going to fail. Life is going to get busy. We are going to neglect. We are going to push back all those things that we need to be remembering over and over and over again. God's character, God's nature, God's promises, His provision. We need to remember those things because we tend to forget and crowd them out. And so we do this when we turn to God's Word. We're remembering this. This is who God is. He's speaking to us. Remember, here's what He has said. Here are His promises to us. We're remembering it in corporate worship. It's a, it's a group remembering. Where we are together rehearsing the promises of God. Together rehearsing the gospel. That you were lost, but now you are found based on the work of Christ. We're singing this to God, but we're singing it to one another. That we might remember God's promises. That we might remember who He is. That we might remember His word. 
We do this through the ordinances where we, we baptize and remember God delivers. He saves. It's through His work, His death and His resurrection that someone can go under and come up. And We remember in the Lord's Supper, this is God's body that was broken and, and His blood that was poured out that we might remember what God has done. How we are unified. How we are one with Christ based on His body, His blood and what He has done. We're remembering these things and this stokes the flames of, the, the flames of faith in our life. Remembering pushes us further into dependence upon the Lord. Further into who He is. Further into our faith. And so Abraham, he goes and he remembers. And he calls upon the name of God. This was, this was more than just uh, some mental jogging. You're like, oh yeah, I remember what happened here. No, he, he calls upon the name of the Lord. He goes to this altar and calls upon the name of the Lord. He doesn't just like need some sort of mental remembrance. He, he needs more than that. There's a spiritual aspect to this so that he responds in a way that would move beyond just his memory into his very actions, into his worship. That's the kind of remembering we're talking about. And so the, we need to ask ourselves, are we putting ourselves in the channels that we need to, the appropriate channels to remember who God is? To remember His promises. To remember His deliverance. Are, are we doing those things? Are, are we also making room for others as well? Knowing that faultless faith isn't ours at the beginning. That we need growth. That there's lots of room for growth. Are we making room in other people's lives for them to remember and for them to grow as well? So Abraham, he, he seems to be moving in a good direction as he remembers what God had done. But not all were moved by this altar scene. Here's where we get the, the crazy nephew story. Now Abraham's nephew Lot had traveled with him, but there's trouble in the camp. Verse 5. And Lot, who went with him, he had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were, were dwelling in the land. Alright? More money, more problems. That's what we're dealing with here. They got, they got all this stuff now, and it's causing issues in the camp. Alright? And here's what Abraham does in response to these issues. He initiates peace. He's the peacemaker here. He goes to Lot and he tries to figure this out. So verse 8 he says, Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me, and if you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. So Abraham's words, they're revealing, I think, some, some growing faith. He's going out, he's one, being the peacemaker, but you also see how he says these things, how he's going about this, how he's going about this peacemaking process. Because what he's doing is, is he is doing something that's going to cost him. Abraham is is separating or willing to separate in a way that is going to cost Abraham. Now think that Abraham's faith had freed him to be generous. Had freed him to even be okay with not being in control of the, every single detail of this situation. So Abraham had just been to the altar. He'd just been reminded of God's promises in the promised land where he remembers God promised land. He promised offspring. He promised blessing through me to the nations. He had just called upon the name of the Lord, worshiped the Lord. He seems to have returned to, in, in a sense, a position of faith. And because of this, he doesn't feel threatened when this issue comes up. In Egypt... Famine pushes in there. Pharaoh presses in. He feels threatened. The promises of God felt 
threatened to him. So he responds out of fear. But now, seems as if he's remembered the promises of God. He's returned, in a sense, to the, to the place of position of faith. He's remembering God's good character. And it's freed him up to handle this process. To, to go about making peace in a way that might even cost him. So he's free, I think, to be generous. That is, that, that Abraham shows great kindness here to Lot. Abraham's the older, Lot's the younger. Abraham's the uncle, Lot's the nephew. I mean, there are, there are so much we could say here that, that Abram doesn't have to do any of this. He doesn't have to give Lot a thing, but instead he initiates peace with him and he offers Lot the choice of the land. Abram could have made his demands and Lot would have had to follow suit. That's not what he does. He treats him as an equal, even though socially speaking at that time, they were far from equal. Abraham's the family patriarch. Here's here's little nephew Lot, and he is being kind and generous. He's he's the orphaned one, the younger one. Lot is the, the uncle, the older. He has the social upper hand, and yet he doesn't exert his own power over Lot to benefit himself. Instead, he turns in generosity toward Lot. He doesn't make demands. He's extremely generous. And here's why I think that he does this. That God had promised him land. So he's not concerned about land. His position is secure in God. His status is secure. The faith in these things, faith in the promises of God, frees him up to live generously. So dividing the land doesn't threaten that God's promise before Abraham that he's going to have land at all. Dividing the land doesn't threaten his standing before God. It doesn't threaten his standing in the land. It doesn't threaten his portion there. And he knows that. You remember Saul and David? Saul got really jealous of David very, very quickly. Why? Because Saul saw David as a threat. He's killing more than me. Like they're celebrating him more. Like that should be good, right? You're the people of God. Don't you want to win? Like David seems to be doing a great job of winning, right? Are you on his team or not? And the answer is no. He wasn't. He wanted that fame. He he saw David as a threat to his reign, a threat to his rule. And so what does he do? He tries to kill him. His standing, his position as the ultimate, the one who is to receive glory, the king, was being threatened. And so he tries to go after David. Now, would he have responded that same way if he knew that his standing and position were absolutely sure? Would he have done that if he known that he was guaranteed that David was not going to strike a hand against him because he is the Lord's anointed? What if he reacted that same way? Now, Abraham didn't feel the need to make a greedy grab at the land. Because he knows this land, God has promised me land. I'm going to get the land that God had promised. And believers, here's the reality, is that we have the same type of freedom. That we have all that we need, all that we need in God's promises to know that our standing, our position, our portion are all secure. That is that nothing, nothing truly threatens us. According to the gospel, nothing truly threatens us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Paul goes down a list to remind us. None of these things can separate you from God's love. Your position in God is secure. Not based on your work, but based on the promises of God in His Word. Nothing can ultimately kill you. If Christ has been raised, you too will be raised, says the Scripture. 
John 10, if we are in the Lord's hand, what can snatch us? None. None can snatch us out of His hand. What about our inheritance? Well, our inheritance is through Christ. Where's Christ? He's he's raised and the inheritance is wholly His. And so our inheritance, which is His already, that He is going to give and share with us, is not threatened because He is alive and He is no longer going to be threatened by anything whatsoever. He is the one who reigns on high. And if our inheritance is with Him, then our inheritance is secure. So faith in the promises of God then frees us up. If that is true, it frees us up to be generous. Frees us up to be the most generous people. Because nothing can truly threaten the things that are ultimate to us. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the garden, or tempted by Satan in the, in the wilderness, He was tempted by the temptation of, of here, all these kingdoms, look at them. They can all be yours. Now there had to be some, some sense that that is, that is true. But what is Jesus free to say? He's, be gone. Be gone. Why? Because Jesus knew the plan that He was going to offer Himself up and His offering Himself up to God that that God would then bestow upon Him the name that is above every name. And that God would then put all of His enemies as a footstool for Him. That He would reign and rule over all. Then His inheritance would be all the kingdoms of the earth. Because He knew His Father, because He knew those promises, He was then free to, to say, Be gone. And in Christ, our position is never threatened. Our portion, our inheritance, they're never uncertain. Our standing is absolutely secure. And so we're free to be kind and sacrificial even, generous to the people of the earth, as Abraham was. Now Abraham's also free to not control the situation. You you notice how how kind of flippantly he's like, just left or right, you, you just take your pick. I don't need to be in control of this. If you choose left, I'll go right. You choose right, I'll go left. You see how... How willing he is. How willing he is to not be in control. To not make sure he micromanages every little thing or he doesn't make any demands. He says it doesn't matter which way you go. Abraham could make, the, could make no demands because he trusted God. Instead of in Egypt where he's filled with fear, even enough to conjure up some sort of, of lie to, to tell the Egyptians, here Abraham can just go for it and just say, you choose, you make the decision, it doesn't matter if it's left or right, he's free now. Now when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, hours before his death, he, he grappled with what lay ahead. Right? Enough to where he's, he's sweating drops of blood. He, he's in turmoil. If there's another way, let's do that. But if not, if not, he comes to this place where he says, Thy will be done. Let this cup pass from me, but if not, let your will be done. Because why? He trusted God. He trusted His Father. Enough to say, I, I don't know what to do here, but I'm trusting you in this. I, I, if there's another way, but your will be done. That was where his heart was settled in the depths of that night. And one author says this, says that if we can't say, like like Jesus said, Thy will be done from the bottom of our hearts, then we will never know any peace. Like like the peace that Abraham seems to have here, right? You choose the left or the right, doesn't really matter. He doesn't seem to be in turmoil over it. He doesn't seem to be threatened by it. You choose whatever. We will feel compelled to try to control people and control our environment and make things the way we believe they ought to be. 
And yet, to control like this is beyond our abilities. And we will just dash ourselves upon the rocks if we can't say, Thy will be done. And the only way you can say, Thy will be done, is if you truly trust the one you're saying, Let your will be done. Now, many of us could probably describe our activity and our lives as feeling compelled to control people and circumstances and situations and our environment. But faith frees us not to feel the need to control everything. Not to micromanage every little detail. Why? Because we trust the one who is ultimately in control. It frees us from anxiety. It frees us from fear. It frees us from worry because we know the one who is ultimately in control. And if you trust that one, then all of a sudden you have this immense freedom and peace in your life that you could never have known other way. And when we feel, when we feel like those who, who are not trusting, then we feel the need to control, to, to grab a hold of it. Like it's got to be able to... to feel manageable to us. And when we go to the Scripture, there are things that are just so unmanageable. God Himself being one of them. <laughs> we feel that way when we aren't trusting God. We aren't remembering His promises. So the question is not like, do you have fear and anxiety? The question is, do you trust God? And can you say, along with that, Thy will be done. They choose the left, I'll choose the right. Thy will be done. If my head gets lopped off, it gets lopped off. Thy will be done. My inheritance isn't threatened. My life actually isn't even threatened. Abraham wasn't worried about Lot's choice. He wasn't worried about the outcome because, because he trusts in God. He seems to be trusting, moving in a good direction. Here's the Abraham we've been talking about, right? This is the Abraham we've been wanting all along. He's starting to be a star. But he's not. We'll see that more and more. But Lot, on the other hand, seems to be going the wrong direction. Poor Lot. I mean, we have, to, we have to hit somebody. And Lot's the one who seems to be on a divergent path away from Abraham. And so after Abraham speaks generously, this should be Lot's moment, right? Abraham speaks generously. Abraham's remembered the promises of God. Here's your moment, Lot. Like Ruth and Naomi moment. No, I'm not leaving you no matter what. That's what we want here. A sob story where he's clinging tightly to his relatives and say, I will never leave you. Loyal to you alone. Right? This is his moment. But he fails. Shouldn't he, as, as this one who, who knows Abram's story, right? He, he knows that Abram received the promises of God. He knows that Abram has been given land and blessing and he's going to have offspring. Shouldn't Lot say, I'm clinging to you. I want to stay close to the promises of God. God has clearly promised these things to you. I'm staying with you no matter what. I think that he should. But instead, there's, there's this noticeable contrast between Abram's growing faith and Lot's lack of it. Verse 10 says, Lot lifted his eyes... And he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. Now this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot should have, as the younger, as the nephew, deferred to his uncle and said, Yo, no, you choose the best. 
You choose your portion. You make your pick and I'll just go where you don't choose. But instead, he looks up. He looks out at the land. He's, he's, he's weighing this decision. He's thinking strategically. He's thinking, what will benefit me the most? And so he looks out at the land. He sees these things and he makes his choice. But he doesn't just choose. He also chooses what's best, not just for the whole thing, but what's best for himself. You see this? He finds the best land. It looks really good. It's well watered, so that's the one I'm going to choose. Now, Lot didn't choose what would be advantageous for his uncle. That seems like the selfless, good way to go. But no, he says, I'll take the best land. You can take what's left over. Now, in verse 10, when we see the word Egypt again, after what we just saw, it should be a warning sign for us. It it surely would have been to the people of God who read this originally. This is a warning. We just saw what happened in Egypt and it wasn't good. There was no blessing going out to Egypt. Instead, it was the opposite. God graciously intervened, but but that should be a warning to them. That wasn't a good experience. But the author continues to help us recognize this as a foolish choice by in verse 10, before we get to that story of Sodom and Gomorrah, saying, that's where Sodom and Gomorrah is. He's letting us on the inside of this deal that he is making a foolish decision. So one author says this really well, I think this is well put, that Lot fancied he was dwelling in paradise, but he was nearly plunged into the depths of hell. He's going the opposite direction. So now that Lot has made his choice, how does Abraham fare in this separation? How does he respond to all that's happened? We see verse 14. Or verse 11, we'll go down a little bit further. Lot chose for himself the Jordan Valley and he journeyed east. East. Like the people of God, like Adam and Eve, they journeyed east out of Eden. Then the people journeyed east and made the Tower of Babel. And now we see it again. They're moving east. There's something strange going on here. And they separated from each other. In verse 12, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, which, wouldn't you know, it happens to be the promised land. Settled in among the cities of the valley and he moved his tent as far as Sodom. And now the men of Sodom, here's another hint that Lot's making a poor decision, were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So he thought he's making a good choice, and he's going down the wrong path. In verse 14, the Lord said to Abram. So what, what a difference, right? Now God's speaking in it. Abram is, is trying to make peace, Lot makes his decision and heads out, and yet God then, that's when God starts to speak. And after Lot had separated from him, he said, Lift up your eyes. And look, and from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise and walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So God reaffirms His promises to Abram. God reaffirms all that He said at the beginning. Abram, He was free to be generous. He was free to not be in control. And here, we're reminded that none of God's promises were truly threatened after all. That all of them still stand as God comes to Abram, speaks to him, and reaffirms all that He said at the beginning. And and Abram even gets to take a victory lap here. Now, let's just go. Let's just walk through this thing. Let's just show you all that you have won. All that I'm giving you. Uh, let's look at this land. Like, it's pretty good stuff. And I'm going to show you this because I want you to, to be reaffirmed in the promises that I've given you from the beginning. And so God graciously reaffirms these promises. He's watering Abram's faith as he continues to walk. He continues to journey. And it fuels his obedience. Verse 18, Abram moved his tent and he came and he settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. 
And there he built an altar to the Lord. So earlier, Abram goes to Bethel at Ai. In between there, he builds an altar. That was previous. He comes and he calls upon the name of the Lord. Here, he he builds an altar again. And he's worshiping God. So he's reminded of, of God's promises, of what he did at the beginning. And here he's reaffirmed in those promises and builds another altar in response to God. Now if you see the map here, I think this is interesting. You may not be able to see it, it's a little small. I'll try to get it as big as I could. Best thing I could come up with. Hebron is at the southern end of the promised land. I don't know if you can even see that up there. It's down here at the bottom. That's at the, the southern end of the promised land, whereas at Bethel and Ai are kind of at the northern end of the promised land. So, so he's built an altar. He's built an altar at, at both ends. In other words, to kind of stake the claim that this is God's land. This belongs to the Lord. Now, there were people in the land at that time, and so this is a very public witness, a public proclamation that this is God's, that He has promised it, and that He is the one we are to truly and rightly worship and respond to in faith. So we, we start chapter 13 with an altar, and we end chapter 13 with an altar. The north end and the south end of the promised land are now marked out by Abram for the land that God has promised to give him. He didn't move east or west. He's moving north and south. He's right in a line, it seems, with God's promises. So he responds to God's reaffirmation with worship, with faith, claiming and marking an altar out to God. So God's word and God's promises, they go out and they don't return void in Abram. They're working and they're growing him and they're changing him. There's, there's faith and obedience, there's worship there. So in building this altar to the Lord in response to God's reaffirmation, here's what Abram is doing. He isn't just giving thanks for the gifts, he's giving thanks to the giver. And that's a, that's a, a needed difference that we need to make. So he doesn't just celebrate the gift, although that was good. He walks through the land. He got to see what God was going to give him and his offspring. But he builds an altar to the Lord, to the giver. Not just for the promises, but to the one who made those promises. So God's word and God's gifts and God's promises, all of those things are great and beautiful and weighty. But they are not meant to be taken alone. One author says this, that God's gifts become avenues for enjoying him. Beams of glory that we chase Back to the source. God's gifts, God's word, God's promises, they're avenues for worship to our God. This is what Abram does. He he doesn't just settle for the gifts. He builds an altar to the Lord to worship Him. So the the promised land, the the victory lap, the reaffirmation of, of offspring, all of those were great and gracious gifts from God, but they were pointing onward. They were pointing upward to a greater and gracious God, a person whom Abram could respond to. And he responds rightly by worshiping, by building an altar to the giver. So we don't need an altar today to respond rightly to to God's promises and even His reaffirmation of His promises in His Word that we hear each and every time that we gather. God desires those who worship in spirit and in truth. That's not a place. It's 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 in a spirit, by His Spirit, and in truth, according to His Word. That's what He desires. But... God desires those that would worship in spirit and truth. It's not just that that's the way we should do it. That's what God desires for us, that we would worship Him in response to all that He has done for us. 
And so we too need to remember the great promises from God's Word, the great promises from God. And we need to celebrate His gifts. We, we ought to celebrate that He gives us forgiveness. We ought to celebrate the, the fellowship that He gifts to us as believers. We ought to celebrate redemption and sanctification and eternal life and all of those things. But if worship were to terminate there, then we would not be hitting the mark. To worship those things is called idolatry. Anything that is worship that is not God alone is an idol. And so if we were to give thanks and to celebrate for just the gifts, then we would be idolaters. Because we are to celebrate and worship not just the gifts, but the one who has given the gifts. The gifts are the avenue for us to trace up toward the one who has given. And so we err if we respond and we celebrate and we worship and it ends with the gift. Abram doesn't do that. What a great promise, Abram. You're going to get offspring. You're going to have this land. That was a great gift from someone who had been worshiping other gods in another land. And his response wasn't to be overly impressed with the gift in and of itself. But he was so moved by the giver that he builds an altar. And he worships this one. So we, like Abraham, we we need to remember God's promises. We need to take in full all of His gifts and receive them with joy. We we just said nothing's threatened, right? Our inheritance, our standing, our position, those things are to be celebrated and sung and remembered. But not just for themselves. The good news of the gospel isn't just that we receive forgiveness. Isn't just that we receive eternal life. That is good news, but it's not the good news. Jesus died to reconcile us to God. That's the good news. That's what we're to celebrate. That's what we're to sing about. We need to remember God's good promises, God's good gifts, but then turn in glad-hearted worship to the giver. So here's what we see, that God is at work in Abram. He's at work in his life. Abram wasn't perfect. He received God's call. He received the promises. And then he went to Egypt in fear. And he acts out of his sinful nature. But his faith is growing. And he's moving in the right direction. There were times when he was sitting on the path. And just sitting there. Worried. Fearful. Now he's up and moving. And we don't know how fast. But the pace is at least he's pointed in the right direction. Now as the people of God, don't we want that? Don't we want growth in our faith? Don't we want to move in the right direction? So how do we get that? How do, how do we, what fuels that kind of growth that Abram's seeing here? What's the secret sauce that we need to have add into our lives? It's His Word. It's His Word. It's His promises. It's His reaffirmation. This is what continues to fuel Abram's obedience. Are we remembering those things? Are we putting ourselves in a place that we we would see these these gifts and these promises and be reminded of them afresh and anew? Even maybe on a, say, weekly basis. Are we looking to His Word? But then, are we tracing those bright, beautiful, weighty beams all the way back to their source? All the way back to God Himself? That's the response. Remember God's promises. Remember what He's done. But respond rightly by not stopping with those promises and tracing them all the way back to our good God. That's the call for the people of God today. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for 
being a gracious God. Let it be said about you that you are gracious. That you are a giver. And God, we see around us, in front of us, and inside all these wonderful gifts that you have given. And God, as a people, we want to thank you for those things. But God, I pray that you would never let us stop with just the gifts alone. That our enjoyment of the gifts would be even more full because we know the giver. And that our worship would be rightly turned to you. God, we are people who have not arrived. My faith is weak. And God, we need you to grow us. So God, would you help us to remember your words, remember your promises, remember your character, remember your deliverance, remember your provision, remember your protection. Would you help us respond rightly to those things? And would you grow our faith through those means? These are the means that you've provided so we feel confident when we pray those things that you will do just that. That all that you ask of us you provide and that you have given us all that we need for life and godliness. So grow us. That we might make a name for you. And that you might be worshipped more and more. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.